Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Mystery Master Conspiracy, written by John Rayburn. Ricochet's intuitive nature and sense of curiosity led him into a career as an investigator. Not a private eye. Not that kind of investigator. He's one who is a seeker and finder of things that have been lost, stolen, or hidden. His methods may be unusual, but he gets the job done when no one else has been able to, and is rewarded with lucrative finder's fees or found treasures for his trouble. Due to his fame and the substantial worth of the items he seeks to recover, Rick's seemingly innocuous livelihood has its share of dangerous situations and harrowing experiences. Hazardous encounters with hijackers, kidnappers, thieves, and drug dealers, to name a few. Good as he is at what he does, Rick would not have been nearly so successful without the Prof and Q providing invaluable research and technical backup. In this adventure, lovely aerospace expert Helga Lang and boy who chum Luther, call me Lute, Martin, also join his team and help him solve challenging mysteries in Europe, the Rockies, and Mexico. Of course, romance develops between Rick and Helga, although neither one seems quite ready to fully embrace a commitment. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Mystery Master, Conspiracy. Chapter 1 My name is Rick O'Shea. Go ahead, make a wisecrack or at least snicker. I'm used to it. I can't imagine what my folks must have been thinking. But at any rate, I've bounced off enough things so my name fits. When I was a kid, all the other kids would shout Kazing at me and laugh their fool heads off. It even got to the point that Kazing was my nickname for a while. It finally wore off when they found they weren't getting to me, and that took all the fun out of it. Oh, I still have a couple of buddies who toss it at me every now and then, but they know it doesn't bother me, and it's kind of an affectionate tag. Enough about that. I'm an investigator. Not a private eye, not that kind of investigator. I probe. I penetrate. If you want to pin it down, probe pretty much means to make a way into something or other, and penetrate is stronger than that, with a solid implication of a compelling power, an impelling force that gains entrance. If you put the two together, it comes out as an investigation or exploration of something you either can't readily see or else there isn't much knowledge about it. So, that's me, right enough. Like I say, I probe, I penetrate, and usually, one way or another, I figure things out and make a decent dollar while I'm doing it. It's certainly not the kind of avocation you can learn about in classes or seminars, so my educational background had nothing whatsoever to do with how I happened to get into this line of work. Work, <laughs> if you want to call it that. I don't want to get too much into this definition thing, but a little explanation of how this all came about might be helpful. I don't know if you've ever read Journey to the Center of the Earth by French writer Jules Verne, but when I was exposed to it back in high school literature classes, it kind of set the stage for me in my future adventures. It all revolved around a Professor Leidenbrock and his teenage nephew, Axel. Together, they traveled across Iceland and made their way into an extinct volcanic crater. 
they wound up at an inter-earth sunless sea where the past was alive and they came face to face with the origins of man. Prehistoric animals and various natural hazards were encountered before they got back to the surface of the earth in the southern part of Italy. A lot of ideas were outlandish, but hey, this was fiction. I've sometimes wondered if some of his notions might have come from Charles Darwin, whose book, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, was published five years before Verne's saga. From a scientific viewpoint, the Verne work was just a psychological quest and had nothing to do with reality, but it sure could stir up a young guy like me who wanted to know about things, fictional or not. Obviously, such a book of spurious realism was not enough to ignite my inner feelings all on its own, but it did serve as the original impetus for my innate curiosity. That, in turn, has led to some startling adventures, some of which could easily be labeled jackassery, I guess, because there have certainly been moments of foolish behavior or actions. Let me give you a case in point. I had just successfully wrapped up three commission searches in France and had been well compensated as a result. In addition, I had made an intriguing acquaintance that I was hoping would develop into something more. My intention was to head for home base in Connecticut. For the time being, though, I was being sidetracked by something I learned at the American Embassy in Paris as I stopped there to take care of business financial affairs that required their stamp of approval. During a non-professional luncheon, one of the attendees made a side remark about the Hartz mountain region in Germany. Previously, I had heard very little about the area, other than to pronounce the mountains as Hartz. However, the young officer casually mentioned the city of Goslar and its founding in 922 AD. It was established as a means of protecting some rich silver mines discovered in the Ramelsburg Mountain, a site that wound up as a favorite residence for early Roman emperors of the time. That was interesting, but what really got my attention as the table-wide conversation continued was an observation by a visiting army officer. He listened and then added, You can understand why those bigwigs of yesteryear liked it there. But there's even a better story. Back in World War II, as things began winding down some after German troops were being pushed back by Allied troops in both Italy and at Normandy, they left a lot of stuff behind they had either captured, stumbled across, or stolen. Just call it loot of one kind or another. An ambassador in the group chimed in. You know, in the wild scramble to retreat, the Nazis used a tactic that was generally called a scorched earth policy. They burned anything and everything that got in their way during a panicky withdrawal, and they didn't care one way or the other that a lot of cultural and historical items were either being destroyed or losing tremendous value. The first officer replied, Ever hear of the monuments, men? And the second responded, I'll say. They were embedded with a large allied force and had to be involved in the violence of all the combat challenges, but at the same time, their basic purpose was to somehow deal with literally hundreds of thousands of valuables, like paintings, sculptures, and stolen art of every description. Every word was making the topic more and more interesting to me, and my curiosity continued to grow and grow until I was compelled to ask, how well did they do? Did they find anything? Oh my, they sure did. Abandoned coal mines, old salt mines were among places where a broad range of hidden and stolen valuables had been stashed. 
some mighty famous paintings by such as Rembrandt, Michelangelo, Vermeer, even Leonardo da Vinci had been buried by the greedy, art-obsessed leaders of the Nazi forces. I don't think there's any way of determining the huge value of all that. I couldn't help asking, do you think they found it all? Who knows? But I wouldn't bet on it. Are they still looking? Why do you ask? Are you wanting to try? That brought a laugh from everyone because they knew about me and my adventures. My success in southern France in the area around the prehistoric cave drawings at Lascaux and later at the troglodyte caves at Ambois and the sensational discoveries at the Chateau de Chenonceaux in the Loire Valley had been covered in the newspapers and aired on radio and television. I nodded. Well, maybe I'd just like to sort of look around. With your credentials, they'd probably let you. But from what I hear, they're sure to keep an eye on you in spite of any accreditation. Nothing further was said, and the luncheon gathering broke up soon after. But I paid a visit to the embassy library before leaving and came across some interesting data. Information about the Iron Curtain that divided Germany for almost 30 years was extensively available. Not as much was said about the entire 500 miles of it that stretched from the Baltic Sea to Czechoslovakia. But I learned that the central point of the front line during the Cold War had been the summit of the Brocken, which is the key peak of the Harz Range. It's really not very high, only a little more than 3,700 feet, but it's loaded with all kinds of folklore and a lot of it very eerie, to say the least. There's what they call the Brocken Spectre, which does a lot of nighttime prowling, and the weird atmosphere reaches a peak on Valpurgis Night. That's when they say the witches of the world get together for the kind of orgy responsible for damning Faust in the classic tale by Goethe. It didn't seem likely I'd find anything, but the urge to try was like a powerful magnet and I couldn't resist. My unplanned jaunt later led me on to the city of Goslar, noted for half-timbered houses and its medieval old town. I looked, asked, listened, and became both enchanted and bewildered but found nothing of any value. I hadn't really expected to, but it was still disappointing and I was on the verge of leaving until one evening I strayed into the backgrounds of the main building. In one darkened area, I thought I spotted what could be a jewel of some kind embedded in an ancient wall. I moved toward it and reached for it, but suddenly I was grabbed from behind and huge arms wrapped around me and began to squeeze. I could hear material ripping and could taste blood as I gasped for air. It felt like my assailant was about to snap my neck like the branch of a tree. I let my body drop, but the attacker snarled and pulled me back up. I struggled as best I could and smashed my elbow into a soft spot on his temple. It caused enough let-up that I was able to run him into the stone wall and it sounded like a bat smashing a baseball, only louder, much louder. He squeezed more, and I hit him in the Adam's apple. He clutched his throat, gagging. He'd never been hit there, but he still, grunting louder, held me like a vice, so I managed to gouge my thumbs into his eye sockets. He screamed with pain, let go, and dropped to his knees. I took a deep breath that hurt my rib cage, but I managed to kick him in the head like I was going for a game-winning field goal, and the struggle was over. Anything was fair because he had wanted to mutilate me and I wanted to punish him. My eyes wouldn't quite focus, 
Everything blurred, and I was about to drop when strong arms held me and a voice asked, Are you all right? Dumb question. But warranted by my condition and appearance, I could only thank my lucky stars it was a minister of some denomination from inside the church structure. He and others heard the noise and came out to investigate. Oh my, are you all right? Here, let me help you over to a seat by the path. You must have had quite a struggle. That man you knocked down and out has been a severe problem for us. He's demented and thinks there are hidden treasures here that rightfully belong to him. We've tried to catch him so he could be placed in a secure environment for any treatment that might help him regain at least some semblance of sanity. You've done us a big favor. I sort of mumbled a thanks and said, Just let me sort of get my breathing back to normal. He really put the squeeze in me. I'm sure. He's extremely powerful and has caused some injuries to tourists he felt might be getting away with his possessions. Fortunately, he didn't get as much aroused as he did with you. I just seen something glinting in that old wall over there and thought it might be valuable. I sort of reached for it and he grabbed me from behind. What you saw doesn't amount to anything. It's just some quartz that glistens when the light hits it right. The culprit over there once tried to pry some of it loose, but soon gave up when he realized it was just really some kind of rock. He must have thought you had found the real thing, his property. Now, mind you, he wasn't going to let you get away with it. When it was clear I was feeling better, he said, let's go inside and take a look to see if you have any injuries we can treat a bit. I was taken into a small area where various bandages, ointments, etc. could be seen in a small pharmacy-like space. I didn't seem to be much the worse for wear, and a couple of small bandages took care of some scrape spots. During the course of conversation, I identified myself, and he immediately brightened. Oh, we've certainly heard of you. Stories of what you did in France have been on the broadcast and in the newspapers, all of them telling of the fabulous fortunes of treasures you discovered that wound up going to government museums to be seen and enjoyed by the masses. Wonderful, wonderful. I was just doing what I was commissioned to do. Well, you certainly aided us in a different way, enabling final, shall we say, capture of a very troublesome individual. We don't have the financial wherewithal your recent clients had, but we do have a means of thanking you along those lines. We've recovered many of the same sort of treasures you discovered and have passed them along for major display in the same manner. However, there are any number of valuables we were unable to trace in any way, and the museum officials allowed us to retain them. We want you to have a portion. The trove, shall we call it, has considerable gemstones, historic gold coins, and the like, and we wish to present you with a valuable packet from the anonymous collection. One in particular, I believe you'll agree, is truly beautiful and worth a great deal a top-grade pendant necklace with a magnificent ruby. I started to protest that I was just protecting myself, but he pushed aside my reluctance. Nevertheless, you have relieved us of quite a problem, and we want you to have this. Enough said, sir. I later discovered he was a high ecclesiastical dignitary and could do precisely as he said. It was extremely gracious, and there obviously was no way I could refuse so it meant I was now going to be finally headed homeward, with a reward I certainly had never expected. So I did just that, headed for home in good old comfortable Connecticut. Upon arrival, though, in relatively short order, 
I decided it would be better to have some extended downtime, brush aside all that had happened, and restore clear thinking as much as possible concerning what the future might hold. Good thought, but still not enough to fully get back to normal. My mulling things over led me to a kind of sabbatical in Denver, and I was ambling leisurely along the 16th Street Mall, not thinking about anything in particular when a loud voice shattered my reverie. Hey, Kazing! It naturally had to be an old chum, so I turned toward the voice and saw Luther, call me Lute, Martin coming toward me. He had been one of those yesterday school acquaintances who had also been intrigued by the mysteries of life, so it was a pleasure to see him again after a considerable lapse of time. We embraced an old friend fashion before he asked, What are you doing out here in the West? I thought you were hanging out back east somewhere. I told him that, yes, I sort of dropped anchor near Old Saybrook, Connecticut. It was a couple of thousand miles away, so Lute's query was a natural one. After a bit of small talk in which I let him know I was just having a bit of R&R with nothing in particular on my platter, he immediately told me he just might be able to change all that and suggested we go have a little talk. We weren't far from the Denver Press Club on Tremont Street, so we decided to head that way and have a bit of lunch. There were pool tables in the basement, and as a further means of loosening up, we played a couple of games, both of us discovering we were pool sharks at heart, each showing desire to demonstrate our prowess with a cue stick in hand, turned out to be even Stephen as we split a couple of wins. Next, after a mild libation, Lute got right down to it. How'd you like to do some lost treasure hunting? I hear you're good at locating things. I told him I hadn't brought along my pick and shovel and that the idea was probably not within my usual purview of locating stuff of one kind or another. That didn't deter him in the least, and he simply replied, Oh, yeah. Well, in this case, buddy, you don't know some of the things I do, and you just might change your mind. First, though, bring me up to date. Tell me about your latest, what do you call them, capers, cases, what? I smiled and said, if you have to put a label on my probes, how about findings? Yeah, that'll do. Findings. I kind of like that. Lute responded. That must be how you found... What is it? Old Saybrook? Where the dickens is that? I chuckled and told him. The best way to tell you is that it's pretty much where the Connecticut River and Long Island Sound come together. Not really very far east-northeast of Manhattan. Simple enough, I guess but to me it sounds as though you can't get there from here. How'd you happen to pick that out? I told him it had been part convenience and maybe part serendipity. I figured the latter fit my good fortune overall. It was sheer luck that I ran across the prof and Q, but at least I was wise enough to accept them into my life. The prof is a retired professor emeritus from a major university, but doesn't announce his real name or the school. Instead, he proclaims, I've outlived my tenure, and now I don't want to be bothered. I just want to tinker. Of course, Rick, I don't include you. You're not a bother. You stimulate me. As it turns out, he has an uncanny knack, based on an incredibly high IQ, that enables him to dream up the doggonest gadgets you can imagine, and they have been of inestimable assistance in my finding efforts. Just for the record, he's 81 years old, his remarkable mind untouched by the encroachment of time. As for Q, 
She's no spring chicken either, a septuagenarian in the early stages of her 70s. Her odd name results from her admiration for the gadgetry genius in the James Bond stories by Ian Fleming. That's not her forte. She just admires the character. Instead, she's a computer whiz, seemingly capable of turning the cyber world into her own private universe. Her real name is Marjorie Alexander, and she originally hails from Baraboo, Wisconsin, in the heart of America's Dairyland, which explains why she won't use margarine but insists on real butter. Far be it from me to question that particular idiosyncrasy because the only response would be her looking down her nose at me accompanied by a oomph. Believe me, discretion can be the better part of valor in dealing with this crusty, lovable curmudgeon. Meaning them you can call luck, or serendipity, or whatever, but I'll ride along with a bit of advice I once heard. If you ever have the opportunity to choose between smart and lucky, choose lucky. They were both part of my ventures I was about to elucidate to loot. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Mystery Master Conspiracy. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.